You know, the Bible makes it very clear that every one of us, every one of us is subject to disappointment, pain, suffering, and ultimately, unless we're living in the rapture generation, which is very possible, but short of that, uh, there's only two things that can happen to us. Um, all of us who live on this third rock from the sun, better known as planet Earth, either die young or we get old and then we die. I mean, aren't you glad you came to church today? You feel better now? Um, somebody said, uh, parenting isn't for sissies. Old age isn't for sissies. Being a Christian isn't for sissies either. Because consistent with that thought, our passage this morning clearly teaches us that uh, what Jesus taught us in John 16, that external opposition to our faith in Christ is inevitable. Look back, uh, there's John 16:33. Most of our translations render, uh, in the world you will have tribulation, thelipsis, is kind of a polymorphic word in Greek. I kind of like here. Jesus says, I've told you all of this so you may have peace. I have the hurricane peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. That's a Bible promise nobody wants to claim. That's straight from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. In the world you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart of overcome the world. So today, without being negative or morbid, we want to deal with the reality that external opposition to our faith in Christ is going to happen. It's, it's inevitable. And, you know, the cultural trends are not real positive toward evangelical Christianity. We're supposed to tolerate everybody but us. And many of the things we hold to be dear and we know are true are being ridiculed and blasphemed at many different levels. So, I think this is a good dose of reality therapy for all of us this morning. But we'll end with the other side of the story. It's not all bad news. Um, let's spend a couple moments in silent prayer just all over the room. If you're a believer, as a believer priest, just prepare your heart to feed on the Word of God. Um, uh, pray for your own teachability. Pray for the teacher that he might have a clear head and a pure heart and not go too much past 45 minutes after the top five list. And uh, just keeping it real, you know. Um, and we also want to pray, as is our custom and our privilege, for our active military. We're honored to have Matt Sanford and his parents here with us this morning. You get the award for the longest drive to church. <laughs> Matt always does, but you get it especially this week. And uh, our peace officers, our firefighters. So let's let's have a moment of silent prayer, and then I'm going to just uh, not dismiss us, but we'll. Uh, Transition. I don't want to get your hopes up. No, no. I'm not, I've only just begun. Okay, let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, truly we thank you for this new day you're giving us and the beginning of a new week and the very first significant thing we do as believers in Christ on this first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, is to get together all over this city, all over this state, country, and globe, literally, there are groups of believers getting together uh, to study the Word, to worship, to pray, to fellowship, to encourage one another, to glorify you, and to exalt in the reality of the resurrected Christ, even as Peter and John do in our passage this morning. Uh, we thank you for those who protect and serve us. Uh, we ask your direction for them, especially those who are believers. We pray for them and their families. I'm thinking of John and Katie in Belgium, and here we have Matt uh, sitting with us, David Moore, so many of these men and women we know and love, and we pray for them and their families, and we thank you for those who protect us, not just in the military, but those who are courageous enough to get on fire trucks or squad cars to deal with really dangerous, difficult situations, and we pray your uh, encouragement for them and your encouragement for their entire families. Uh, we thank you for each one who's here. We pray that you open our hearts to see, believe, correlate, and apply your truth uh, through your timeless word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as we warm our, our minds up, 
so we have our capacity for abstract thought so we can correctly understand God's word. I want to talk about top five things John, uh, John, Ron Miller enjoyed when he was a first-class, world-class Halliburton accountant. Uh, Ron has not always been a big, uh, famous, rich T-shirt shop owner. Uh, he was a guy that worked for Halliburton and during one of the round of layoffs many years ago now. He lost his position there. And he loves selling T-shirts. And if you need T-shirts, buy your T-shirts at Red Dirt Apparel. It's just There's no question about that. But uh, there are some things he enjoyed about being an accountant. And these are, I'm not going to go over all 5,000 of them. But I just kind of boil it down to the top five. At the peak of his accounting career, he received almost as much fan mail as Tom Cruise. So he, he really enjoyed reading all those letters. He didn't say these were funny. We're just trying to warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Uh, other than being a preacher, an NBA basketball coach, or a mortician, accounting was the only job that encouraged him to come to work wearing a coat and tie. So, uh, Number three, he was one of the first people as an accountant to hear about all the newest, fanciest features in pocket calculators. So he was on the cutting edge of that. They get better, I think. Don't make promises you can't keep, Pastor Brad. <laughs> it didn't happen often, but both times Ron messed up somebody else's tax return. They went to jail, and he didn't. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's, that's a perk, you know, you get. And finally, his low-key demeanor as an accountant totally covered the fact that his secret true identity was and still is Batman. There he is. You can, you can tell. You can tell. If you look at the chin line, that's definitely, he is definitely Batman. Okay. Now, uh, Book of Acts is a big book. It's 28 chapters. And as we work our way through it, we're going to use this memory aid, Jesus is alive as head of his bride, to summarize the essence of each chapter. Each one of those letters lines up with chapter division. And so let's talk about Jesus is as we look at chapter 4 today. In chapter 1, Jesus ascends back to heaven. That's where he manifests his presence. He's omnipresent, but he visibly manifests his presence at the right hand of the throne of the Father. E is chapter 2, the establishment of the New Testament church. Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, both the people of God, but not the same category. S, salvation of a lame beggar, as we saw last week, and we're going to see the aftermath of that today, unleashing of the first official persecution against the New Testament church. Chapter 5, sin in in the church. I should just say in the church, but uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes we're, we're, we're our own worst enemies. Uh, chapter 6, influence of devoted deacons. They had some really great deacons in that first church, but they didn't hold a candle to my man David and Mike. These guys are world-class deacons we got, and they make a big difference in the church then and now. And then uh, Jesus is, I-S, Stephen stoned to death. So you go from unleashing a persecution at one level in chapter 4, we'll look at that today, to Stephen being killed, lynched, stoned to death in the streets of Jerusalem. Okay. Now i got good news, bad news about our passage. If you break it down at one level, you got seven different categories there, which is way too much for anybody to take home with them or think through easily. So don't thank me. I do a lot of nice things like this. But I've broken all those seven categories down really into three uh, stages of this narrative. First, the leaders of, of Judaism, the, the leaders of institutional Judaism, Mel, the same people who had condemned Jesus and sent Jesus to Pilate just a little over two months before this. Now they got Peter and John in the same meeting place. And who knows what's going to happen? They asked uh, Peter and John, a direct question about the miracle of the lame man. And Peter just gives them a, a direct answer and just hits a grand slam home run. And here's a guy that two months before wouldn't even admit he knew Jesus and cussed about it. So that's big. So that's the first thing that happens. Second thing that happens is the leaders then go into executive session, just them, to talk about what are we going to do with these guys. And then they come out of the session and they warn Peter and John not to teach or say anything about Jesus to anybody. How's that going to go over? Well, Peter just respectfully says, you know what? If i got to choose between God and government, I'm going to choose God every time. The principle is always obey legitimate human authority. 
until or unless it's a direct sin to. And they've been commissioned by Jesus to go everywhere and talk about the resurrection. And now these religious guys say, don't tell anybody. And they're going to say, sorry, sir, but I can't do that. We're not going to do that. And, and then, amazingly, because they have no legal grounds to do anything else, plus they're afraid of a riot, uh, the leaders release Peter and John. And then, last couple of verses, the church prays so they don't panic about the outbreak of official persecution. And then we see the believers in Jerusalem Bible Fellowship. It wasn't First Baptist Jerusalem. It was definitely Jerusalem Bible Fellowship are empowered. Let's look at that first part of that. Direct question, direct answer. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, whoops, next day. We've got to go back and get some context. Go back to chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, the day of this amazing sign and wonder. Apostles only do this kind of stuff to prove they know and have seen the resurrected Jesus. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple there in Jerusalem at about 3 in the afternoon, the time of the afternoon sacrifice, time of daily prayer, uh, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb, he had never been able to walk. It's a paralytic. It was being carried along whom... They used to, his friends used to set him down every day at the beautiful gate in front of the temple in order to beg alms of those entering the temple. When he, the paralyzed guy, saw Peter and John, he didn't necessarily know who they were, he just saw his two people who might have money on them, about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him. Let's have a personal connection here, bud. And said, look at us. And he began to give him his attention, the paralyzed guy, expecting to receive some money. But Peter said, I don't have any money on me. I do not possess silver and gold. But what I do have as an apostle, as a representative of the church of Jesus Christ, at a foundational level, I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. You can't reproduce this in the laboratory. It was supernatural. Now jump forward to chapter 4, verse 1. So in the aftermath of that... As a crowd gathers, Peter talks about the resurrected Christ and says, uh, you guys blew it, you crucified him and handed him to the Romans, but he was the Messiah, and through faith in him you can have eternal life. And chapter 4 says, as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the crowd in the aftermath of the miracle, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, Peter and John, and interrupt them being greatly disturbed because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on Peter and John, put them in jail to the next day, because now it's 5 o'clock, 5.36 o'clock, the offices are closed, but they'll put, in, put them in a cell for overnight and deal with them tomorrow. But after Peter and John laid, many of those who had heard in the crowd about Jesus believed and the number of the men in the early church came to be about 5,000. Now we're ready to read verse 5. On the next day, what happened that night? Peter and John are sitting in the jail, waiting to find... They don't know, how it's, they don't know this is going to work out well. They don't know what's going to happen. Uh, they haven't done it before. So the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, including Annas, the high priest, his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who would also be a high priest, John, the son of Annas, who had also become a high priest, and Alexander, we don't know anything about him, but he wasn't Alexander the Great. He was just kind of Alexander the, the regular. Okay, And all who were of high priestly descent, that's the Sanhedrin. There were 70 plus the high priest. They would meet in a room they've dug up archaeologically. It was a semicircle, and they're going to put Peter and John right in that very intimidating place, right in the middle of that semicircle. They're going to process this as a crime. This is called the case of the no longer paralyzed guy who no longer needs to beg at the temple. That's the name of this case they're going to prosecute, okay? That's what it's called. Uh, when they placed them in the center of the semicircle where they all sat, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? They know what they said. They've talked to witnesses. They're saying, are you really claiming Jesus, the guy we killed, is still doing stuff in you or through you? What gives? That's the direct question. Now the direct answer. But Peter, who two months before, you know, ducked and ran and cussed his way out of a position situation to identify Jesus at all, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, 
rulers and elders of the people. These are the leaders of institutional Judaism in the first century, just outside the temple complex. If we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to you, we're guilty. We're guilty as charged. And let you, we want you and all the people to know that we did this by the name, based on the person, power, and program of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you, that's plural, all y'all in Oklahoma, whom all y'all crucified, you condemned him and handed the Romans to be crucified, whom God the Father raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands, the guy who got healed, stands here before you in good health. And then, talking about Jesus, Peter cites a psalm that the religious leaders would have been very familiar with. If I, even in many places, certainly Duncan, if I were to be speaking to the, to, uh, the Rotary Club, the Qantas Club, and, and I, if I were to say, you know, my message today is, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, they would all know John 3.16. Trust me, you might not be that familiar with Psalm 118. I'm not all that familiar with it. But when Peter cites it here, the Sanhedrin knows he's citing Old Testament prophecy about the Christ. Peter says in verse 11, He, Jesus, the one you condemned but God resurrected, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And, very controversial statement today, there is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. For there's no other name person, program, power under heaven that's been given among men, and that's the word anthropos, anthropology, people, you can change that to people, it's generic in the original, that's what it means, by which we must be saved. Is that, is that dangerous or what? Uh, Peter has been radically transformed by the resurrected Christ, and he just flat says, Jesus is it. I wonder where he, I wonder where he got that. Did he kind of invent that up on the fly? Hold your place and go back to the upper room just before the arrest. Look at John 14. Uh, you know, the word exclusive, Christianity is so exclusive. It sounds like a, the modern, the only cuss word in our modern culture is to be exclusive. You know, uh, but whoever picks the labels wins the war. And yeah, we are exclusive, but I'm going to say we're unique. We're unique because Jesus is unique. None of the claims, forget about whether they actually did any of this stuff, none of the claims of the modern uh, founders of all the religions come close to what Jesus actually did. None of them claim to be the second person of the ontological trinity. None of them claim to have done all the work necessary to get uh, Ben Harrington, Homer Cox, and more importantly, Brad McCoy from Oklahoma to heaven. None of them claim that. None of them claim to have been literally bodily resurrected. Several years ago when Jonathan and Candace were doing the one-year stint, uh, short-term international missions for Campus Crusade in Chiang Mai, Thailand, we were there on Easter Sunday. We were taken to a Buddhist temple, and they proudly told us that part of the Buddha's collarbone was in this building. And I said, man, this is ironic. I'm a born-again evangelical Christian that believes without any doubt the literal bodily supernatural resurrection of Jesus Christ, which validates the saving virtue of his death. And now they're bragging about having a piece of the Buddha's collarbone over here. <laughs> yeah. I think Peter probably got his theology from Jesus. Uh, Homer and I were a little bit miffed when we were in Sepphoris, and you can see uh, Nazareth from Sepphoris, when our uh, Asher, our wonderful Israeli guide, told us that no doubt Jesus got most of his theology from the synagogue school over here in Sepphoris. And we thought, no, I don't think he got any theology from any human teacher, you know. He just kind of was it, you know. If Ben Hogan shows up and wants to teach how to swing a golf club, uh, you kind of listen to him. You listen to the man. He knew how to swing a golf club. This is what Peter heard Jesus say. Don't panic when you face opposition and it's coming. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't panic. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this isn't just now, it's forever. It's not just death, it's resurrection. In my Father's house, we're talking about heaven. There are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you so you could get out of here before the bullets start flying. And I'm leaving. 
to prepare a place for you in heaven. If I go and prepare a place for you, uh, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you guys know how to get there. You've already believed in me as Savior. Uh, Thomas, who's not a great theologian at this stage, says, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Peter heard Jesus say that two months ago, and now under fire, rather than ducking and running like he did two months prior, he's seen the resurrected Christ, he's been transformed by the resurrected Christ, and they say, basically, what's going on here? And he says, look, we just uh, did this in the power of Jesus Christ, and there is salvation in no one else. The Buddha can't save you. You can go see his collarbone, and, and in fact, you can't even see it. You have to take it on faith part of the collarbone is in that building. They won't let you see it. And I'm kind of skeptical, so I'm not sure I believe it's even in there. But even if it is, who cares, you know? Um, they've got body parts. We've got a resurrected Savior. It's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. So forget about exclusive. Uh, let's say we're just unique. We've got a unique salvation offered by a unique Savior. Uh, there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name, person, program, or power under heaven, given among people, whereby we must be saved. So uh, the resurrection changes everything, and it's a total, it's a game, it's a game winner. It's a, it's a game ender. It's like a walk-off home run. It ends the religious debate. It's all about a relationship with God through Jesus. Now, the word gospel uh, means good news, and I like acronyms and stuff, so let's just say gospel is God's offer of salvation, providing eternal life. Uh, that's the uh, iron kind of uh, window there, iron window cover, uh, in a little church, a chapel called the Church of the Teardrop on the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting to look back to the west from the Mount of Olives through that wrought iron uh, masterpiece and look at the Temple Mount. And this is where, in the general area where uh, Peter and the Sanhedrin are meeting, uh, you know, that's called the Dome of the Rock. That's where the Jewish temple would have been. Uh, at this point in the narrative of the book of Acts. But as you know, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632, 570 to 632 A.D. After he died, within 70 years, they'd conquered Jerusalem and built the Dome of the Rock there, not as a worship center, but as a monument to the victory of Islam over Christianity and Judaism. There is a mosque about a thousand yards south of that called the Alaska Mosque, but that's not a mosque. So that's the message of the apostles, that's the reality of all history, and that's, that's our message. And uh, there are a lot of great churches in Duncan, and you look at the 98 churches we've got now, there are a couple on the far left, far left for you guys, uh, that deny most of what's believing, worth believing in Christianity. There's a few on the far right that think they have a unique franchise and they've got to do stuff for you, you can't be saved. But most of us, despite our many differences on incidentals and minor issues, embrace the same Jesus Christ. The Bible says, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So, Peter, I think, two months ago thought being associated with Jesus is going to bring me real pain and maybe death, and I don't want to do that. And now having really seen and integrated the reality of the resurrection deep into his heart is saying any opportunity like this isn't about me possibly having to pay a price. It's about me being able to share the truth with these people. And I think uh, as we're going to read later, there are some intimations in the book of Acts. Some of these guys in this room may have come to faith. Not a bunch of them, but a handful might have. And I think Peter saw that as a wonderful opportunity as opposed to some horrible, uh, uh, terrible thing that he's got to think about. How's this going to affect me like in five minutes? And he could have thought that and just kind of watered it down, but he doesn't. Okay, let's go to the second part. Direct question, direct answer. Now the leaders are in big trouble. They've got to do something with these people. Uh, it's too late to not to. And so they're going to go in executive session and then warn Peter and John not to tell anybody about all this stuff. Look at verse 13. 
Now, as they, that is the Sanhedrin, very well educated. All these people have PhDs and they've all got ordination and all this wonderful stuff and their walls are just full of degrees, more degrees than a uh, thermometer kind of thing, right? As they observed the confidence, the eloquence of Peter and John and understood that these were uneducated, untrained. That doesn't mean they're illiterate. It just means they haven't gone to the accredited seminaries that the Sanhedrin uh, preferred. They were amazed. They were just amazed at their eloquence and their courage. And then they began to say, you know what, I, we do kind of remember those guys kind of behind Jesus a couple of times. They, these Sanhedrin guys had been observing Jesus uh, for the last couple of years trying to find something not to like. If you look at anything long enough, you will find stuff not to like. Okay, so some at some point you're going to look, choose to look at the half full portion of the good stuff, because in a fall, fallen world, nothing's perfect. But the and, and even worse, nothing you really like lasts very long, right? And uh, I don't want to talk about persecution. Just about every major thing I really like at Walmart, they no longer offer within six months. It's unbelievable. Okay. <laughs> I want blueberry pomegranate zone bars. Zoop, they're gone. Okay. They used to have this fruit salad stuff in a jar. I bought it. I bought scads of that stuff every time I was forced to go to Walmart. And then boom, they don't have it anymore. I mean, they just follow me around. That's why they have, the reason they have those codes that they, they wipe isn't to keep track of inventory. It's to find out the stuff I want so they can eliminate it. That's, that's it. And I don't go to football games anymore because every time they huddle up, I know they're talking about me. So. <laughs> I just, I'm not going to put myself in that position, okay? Yeah, so that kind of remembering, yeah, we saw that guy with Jesus, those two guys with Jesus. And seeing the man, and so, and so they're looking at that and saying, I can't believe this guy's so eloquent. We don't like what he's saying necessarily, but we can't believe how accomplished and how calm he seems to be. And then they're looking at the guy that Peter and John healed and seeing the man who had been healed standing <laughs> with Peter and John, he's exhibit A, you know, right? Uh, they had nothing to say. I mean, like, we're going to have to go in executive session, decide what we're going to do here. But when they'd ordered them to leave the council so that these guys can meet privately, they began to confer with one another. What are we going to do now? What shall we do with these guys? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them as apparent to all who believe in uh, all who live in Jerusalem. Everybody has seen this thing. Yeah, today Richard Dawkins, the world's greatest atheist, can just deny that miracles happen and just say somebody made it up later. These guys cannot do that. They, they can't just deny it. It's, it's, they got the evidence, right? And we can't deny it. But so that it will not spread any further, this whole idea that Jesus fulfills messianic prophecies and he resurrected. Uh, among the people, let us warn Peter and John to speak no longer to any man, any person in this name. And then they call them out of executive session. Uh, and when they had summoned Peter and John, they commanded them. This is the official Jewish Sanhedrin, the kind of Supreme Court slash Senate uh, of the nation under the Roman uh, occupation, of course. Uh, they commanded just officially... Uh, Peter and John, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then we'll be fine. Just get out of here and don't cause any more problem. But Peter and John answered very respectfully and up front, nothing behind, under the, under, under the board or under the table, and said to them, uh, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to, you, heed to you rather than to God, there's a direct conflict here, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you, to all y'all, Rather than to God, you be the judge, but we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We're not going to stop. We're not going to put a lid on this thing. When they had threatened them further, they're threatened, they're threatening serious bodily harm if you tell anybody about this. We're just telling you. You can say whatever you want to in here, but don't tell anybody. Um, they let them go, parenthesis, finding no legal basis on which to punish them. And also on account of the people, because you might liable to have a riot, because they were all glorifying God, because this guy had been healed, and he'd been there for most of 40 years. We kind of last week said, if he's 40 years old when he got healed, when do you start your, your begging ministry, your begging uh, job? And I've decided age 10. It might have been younger, but I'm just arbitrarily saying, he's, so he's been doing this for 30 years or longer probably, 
And the point is, everybody in town knows something happened to this thing, and it's just no longer uh, no longer uh, a, a problem. So what does Peter basically say? He says, you tell us, theologians, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to obey you as opposed to God, but we're going to obey God. We've been told to talk about this, and we're going to. Hold your place there. Go to the next chapter. Look at chapter 5, verse 28-29. Uh, so you know what's going to I'm, I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. You know what happens, uh, um, Linda? Uh, they're going to release Peter and John. They're going to start talking about Jesus again, and they're going to get rearrested. And these guys are going to say, we told you not to do that. We told you not to tell anybody. And then in response to that, Peter's going to say the same thing, only different. He says, uh, if I can find it, uh, we gave you, I'm looking at 5 verse 28, we gave you strict orders back in chapter 4 not to continue teaching this name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You tend to bring this man's blood upon us. A little conviction there, right? But Peter said, Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. Now keep that in, in your minds, okay? Peter's saying we've got to obey God rather than men. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Now who was the human author of 1 Peter and 2 Peter? Who was buried in Grant's tomb? Yes. When did the War of 1812 start? And if you just read the question a lot of times, the answer is right there for you. 1 Peter 2. And look at verse 13. Okay, 1 Peter, the uh, letter, chapter 2, verse 13. This same guy who so boldly says, sorry, sirs, but we cannot obey that order because it directly contradicts what God's told us to do. He says, just generally... Verse 13, chapter 2, 1 Peter, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Uh, but I didn't vote for the president. Doesn't matter. I didn't vote for the governor. Doesn't matter. Do you think Peter voted for the Sanhedrin? Or for Nero as emperor? There's no voting there. right? Uh, to every human institution. That includes your boss at work, your coach on your team, your, your teacher. Uh, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. We're supposed to punish evildoers and promote good stuff as opposed to let them destroy, let them destroy a couple of blocks of stuff. That'll make them feel better. Now, if the mayor had said, let them destroy my house and my block that I own, all the rent houses I've got, let them destroy that and we'll figure it out. They never, they never do that. They're very generous with somebody else's stuff and money. Watch out. That's just me. Okay. There were riots in Baltimore. I don't know if you heard about it, but it happened. Um, so human government is much better than anarchy because it's supposed to promote some kind of stability, punishment of evildoers, praise of those who do right. For this is the will of God, that by doing the right thing and just being a good, uh, honest, law-abiding citizen, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men who say we're dangerous because we're not. Act as free men, don't use your freedom as a cover for evil. Use it to serve God. Honor all people. We respect everybody, regardless of race, color, uh, orientation. We honor everybody. We've all got the image of God in them. Marred by the fall, just like I am. But they've got that. Love the brotherhood in a special way. Fear God, honor the king. Now, how do you put those two together? How can Peter say, in effect, two different times in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we got to obey God rather than man. We can't obey what you just said. And then turn around and say, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Political, secular, doesn't matter. Those are contradictions, right? I don't think so. I think you have a general principle and a specific overriding dynamic. Does Do airplanes contradict the law of gravity? In other words, airplanes... There's no law of gravity around airplanes, right? No. The law of aerodynamics temporarily overrides the law. But eventually it runs out of every airplane lands or crashes. Every single one. They don't just go around it forever, right? So I like the illustration that uh, when Mavis is six, and you guys blessedly have moved out of uh, Boston back to the promised land of Duncan... I'm not a prophet, but we're going to pray that happens sooner rather than later. 
Um, she's six, and you put her to bed, and uh, she's messing around like some kids do. And first she wants some water, and then she, uh, Jamie used to say, hey, Mom, I need a snack. He always wanted a snack, you know, at, nine, at bedtime. So you give him a little snack, you give him all that, and then finally say, Mavis, don't call out for Mommy and Daddy again. Is that an absolute gnomic command that they intend for her never, ever under any circumstances, including, if I hope it doesn't happen, her room were to catch fire? Would she sit there and say, I can't call out for Mommy and Daddy because I said don't call out again? you got a general principle in kind of normative situations. Don't call it again, go to sleep. But if your room catches fire, let us know, right? <laughs> the general principle is in, in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. Just obey human government generally. The specific overriding principle is until or unless there's a direct conflict. And I can remember when... Uh, I used to believe that you just pass a law and everything's going to be fine. We're living in Houston. President Carter, we're in the oil, the gas shortage thing, and the president got on the got on the television. This is back when we only had three channels, kid. I know you you won't believe it, Riley. We used to only have three channels on TV, but he said, you know, we passed a law and we're going to limit the maximum speed limit all over the United States to 55 miles an hour. Remember that? And they did the calculations. They said we're going to save all this oil, all this gas. And I'm living in Houston where the speed limit was like 70 on the loop and everybody went 85. And if you wanted to avoid being killed, you had to drive at least 82 and start it straight out of the way. Try to stay out of the way. So I, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in dental school and I'm going, wow, this is so great. You know, the beginning of the next month, suddenly everybody that is driving 85 and almost hitting me on my way to dental school every day, they're all going to be driving five, 55 miles an hour with a big smile on their face. I said, this is so great. I really believe that's going to happen because they passed a rule, you know. So I got, got in my car the, the first day the, the law was in effect. And if anything, they were driving faster. You know, I mean, they didn't, it didn't slow them down a bit, you know. But here's the thing. Uh, if they pass the law, that's the speed limit, you really ought to obey that. I get, they give you a couple of miles over, so go ahead and go 57. But, you know, right, you know, that's not a direct conflict. You can't pick and choose what laws you're going to obey, what rules you're going to obey, but there are some catastrophic things. If I'm a German soldier in 39, and I, I'm a, a real believer that we're going to expand the fatherland so we can have great economies, and Adolf Hitler's really a good guy, and then he's, I get the order, I've got to go shoot this Jewish family, what do you do as a Christian? You go, sorry, sir, I can't do that. I cannot obey that order because the murder of them overrides whatever authority any human person has. And can you imagine the gall, go back to Romans, uh, Acts 4, uh, these guys think they're going to put a lid on the reality of the resurrection and the apostolic proclamation of that. Ain't going to happen, can't happen. And Peter just says, we're not going to do that. I'm sorry. I don't care what the price is. Okay, so direct question, direct answer, interaction with the Sanhedrin. Now let's, let's see what happens in the aftermath of this as they get released. Okay. And that's the, that's the crazy thing. Uh, they get released. Um, verse 23. When they had been released, Peter and John, they went to their own. Now you may have something in italics there, companions or friends, but it means to the fellow believers there in Jerusalem. Uh, italics means it's not in the Greek text, but the translators think it's implied. Okay. And the implication is they went back to fellow believers. And reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them, and when they, the other believers there, heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all this in them. You're the owner. You're the ultimate authority figure. We recognize that, and we're going to try to submit to that no matter what the uh, Sanhedrin says. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said in Psalm 2, and again, that's a passage we've been very familiar to these folks, maybe less familiar to us, but it starts with a rhetorical question, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, and against his Christ, second person of Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And it goes on. It's a wonderful psalm. If you turn to Psalm 2 real quick, we won't spend much time here. But it's one of my favorites. 
I mean, it's just an amazing kind of orientation to reality in whatever it is, 12 verses. It's not very much content, but it's just some transcendent truth. But after the rhetorical question about the ongoing opposition of the status quo, of the conventional wisdom of human viewpoint thinkers, including a lot of rich and powerful people against God and his program in Jesus, the thing ends up with nothing but grace. It talks about the destruction of the present status quo by the second advent. But in verse 10, look at this grace, uh, Riley. Now, therefore, in light of the fact God permits but doesn't promote evil, but he's going to stop it on his terms by the second coming of Christ, we call as New Testament Christians, they would have called it the glorious appearing of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment, take warning, all you big shots on earth, worship Yahweh with reverence, worship God with reverence, rejoice with trembling. And do homage to the Son. The King James says, kiss the Son, which meant bow down and worship in that context. Uh, that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled and it's coming eventually. But how blessed are all those who trust in him. That's John 3.16 in the Old Testament. How blessed. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. So we go back to chapter 4 of Acts. They're citing the first couple of verses of that. Everybody uh, in that audience would have been very familiar with that whole psalm. And they're just saying, hey, you know, Psalm 2 makes it clear there's going to be a pattern of opposition against God and the Messiah. So the fact that these guys don't like us and arrested us and warned us about that stuff shouldn't surprise us. You can't give the enemy the uh, the power uh, of surprise. You know, a lot of times in battle, uh, the element of surprise is the thing that turns a battle one way or the other. You can't give the enemy or the fallen world the enemy a surprise. I believe in the depravity of man, but I'm amazed at how much good stuff God gets into the, to, to the fallen world. I can't believe how great the fallen world is. When you look at the great parts of it, I'm talking about Macy. I'm talking about Asher. I'm talking about Mavis. And more importantly, I'm talking about Cooper, Peter, Lincoln, Vivian, Violet, and Eloise. We're going to take over the world, two kids at a time. We haven't... Uh, and when you get, when God gets history where He wants it, and we go into Revelation 21, 22, it's only gonna be so much better by a factor of infinity. God can pack so much good stuff in a fallen world now, despite the riots, and the cancer, and the mayhem, and all the immorality, and all the stuff we could talk about. Uh, can you imagine what the perfect universe will be? How great it will be? And you, some people, Pastor, I'm just afraid about something. What are you afraid about? I'm afraid I'm going to get bored in heaven. You know, hey, listen, sit down, you know. As Bob Shallot would have told you, you must have a really easy life if you're worrying about that. I mean, come on. Uh, yeah, so rather than panic, they pray about this thing. Look at this, verse 27. Uh, and they're just saying, can you imagine how ironic this is? In this very city, uh, they were gathered together against Jesus your holy servant Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, whom you anointed, both Herod, quote-unquote Jewish, and Pontius Pilate, Gentile, along with the Gentiles generally, the Romans, and the peoples of Israel to do whatever ultimately your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak the word with confidence. You see what they're praying about? They're not saying, Lord, eliminate this problem. Lord, convert all those guys so they won't threaten us anymore. They're not praying for blessing the way we tend to define it. They're praying for boldness. They're not praying uh, that uh, this opposition would end so much, although I'm sure they'd have, have be happy if that happened. They're just praying for opportunity and boldness and enablement to preach about Jesus against that black background. Uh, I've often said this. God's more interested in your circumstances, then, in your character, than your circumstances. If I get that wrong, fire me. Okay, let me say it again. God is more interested in your character than your circumstances. And he says, I'm going to use your circumstances to make you what I want you to be, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, my, uh, big, little, spiritual, or uh, secular, as you live your life, right? All areas of life submit to Lordship of Christ. Uh, verse 30. And we're praying you'll allow us to be bold in 
proclaiming who Jesus is and that you'll extend your hand to heal and do other signs and wonders to the miracles of the apostles to reinforce this. Now, they didn't have this. They had living apostles. They had a living New Testament in the person of the apostles. We've got a written New Testament, and uh, that puts us in a different situation than the first century church. Look at the last verse, verse 31, the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of all of this. And when they had prayed thus, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. A little mini earthquake, providentially, not just accidentally happening there. And they were all filled, controlled with the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, they asked for boldness and they got it. They began to speak the word of God with boldness. Wow, take this home. External opposition to our faith in Christ is inevitable. But panic is optional and not <laughs> recommended. Let's look at another passage in 1 Peter real quick before we finish. Look at 1 Peter 4. Now why am I emphasizing 1 Peter in a passage that's all about Peter's faith and his boldness? Because we're in a passage about Peter's boldness and his faith and we want to see what he says about similar kind of things. 1 Peter 4 verse 12. He just flat says, don't give the enemy the element of surprise when bad things happen to good people because it happens all the time in a fallen world. And it won't stop until we get a whole new universe organized. 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. They're facing persecution. They've lost their jobs and their pensions. They're aliens in a strange country to get away from the bad guys. And now more bad guys are giving them problems for their faith. Don't be surprised that the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening, as if, as if you know God's taking the day off. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, your sufferings are connected with Christ and your, your confession of him. Keep on rejoicing. That's a good thing. Somebody noticed you're a Christian. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may in a special sense rejoice with exaltation, having some battle scars. If you're revived for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because clearly the spirit of glory and of God rests on you and somebody's noticed. And uh, they don't like it. That's not necessarily bad at all. Make sure, though, none of you suffer for the wrong reasons. Well, you know, they arrested me because I'm a Christian after I murdered two people. Uh -uh. The idea that killing abortion doctors is a good idea, it's not a good idea. It's, It's sin. It's horrible sin. And it really hurts us. Just from the publicity standpoint, it just ruins our cause. So, the the uh, ends do not justify the means. Uh, if government, uh, your your boss may fire you. You know what? If I'm paying somebody eight hours a day to crank out something at a desk for me, and they spend two hours a day doing a Bible study, I'd probably fire them too. Okay? I didn't pay them to do a Bible study. I paid them to do something else. Uh, I've talked to so many businessmen who say I hate to do business, Christian businessmen. I hate to do Christian, I hate to do business with people who up front I don't know that emphasize that they're Christian donut makers, Christian tea shop owners, Christian lawyers, because invariably they break your heart, man. If that's the first thing they talk about in a kind of a formal way, uh, a lot of times that's just to get their foot in the door. And they do us a lot more harm than good. Don't hide your faith, but don't kind of use that as your only selling feature and then live inconsistently with it. So he's just saying, hey, uh, don't suffer for stuff you've done that's illegal, but if you suffer as a Christian when you're trying to do the right thing, uh, don't be ashamed and don't panic. Glorify God. For it's time for testing to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what's going to be the ultimate outcome for those who reject the gospel? Verse 19, Therefore, those who suffer, those of us who suffer according to the will of God should entrust our souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right, uh, in the midst of the deepest, darkest difficulties, doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts. Refuse to second-guess God and keep on trusting uh, that God's ultimate purposes are being worked out. They're being worked out. Here on earth, you're going to face many tribulations, trials and sorrows, but take heart, I've overcome the world, and there's more than just the now. And the not yet, Patty, Every little scrape on your soul will be more than healed. There are some wounds you can suffer on earth that can't be healed this side of heaven. I get that. I've got a few myself. Okay? So, of course, heaven's got to be there for God to make sense. 
But we've got a resurrected Savior that is the ultimate uh, testament to that fact. So don't be surprised by opposition. Doubt your doubts when they're there and keep moving. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this very practical, very relevant, timely uh, message that uh, we should realize that uh, even official opposition uh, by structures in our culture uh, to our faith is is inevitable. It's going to happen. There's a clash of worldviews going on here. But panic and doubt and uh, going uh, way undercover is inevitable. Help us to realize that you're putting us in all these circumstances we deal with now for specific reasons, even if we can't think of a good one. We trust you know what they are. And whether we uh, work at a school or whether we're a stay-at-home mom or whether we're an engineer or a uh, computer systems engineer kind of person going to MIT, whatever it is, uh, we're going to face some opposition. We're going to face some problems. And you want us to continue to trust and obey, doubt our doubts, you want to get to the end of our rope, tie a knot on in faith and hold on. And you'll enable us to do that. And then you'll use all of that, not just in us, but in other people, in ways we may not totally be able to even conceive of until we get the PowerPoint program at our orientation in heaven. But something like that we know is going to happen. And we look at Peter and John, we are amazed at the transformation you've done in these guys' lives, especially Peter's life, in just a couple of months. And I pray you'd make us more like that. Uh, respectful and consistent, but unwilling to compromise the, the essentials of our faith, no matter who talks to us about it or whatever the uh, intelligentsia or the elites uh, or the leaders think about it. I uh, thank you for each one who's here. I pray for anyone, Father, this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as your spirit convicts them of their sin and their need. Uh, anyone who's not trusted Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, I pray you'd open their eyes to see and believe in him. For those of us who are believers, encourage us uh, to persevere in the face of opposition, to keep running uphill into the wind, knowing you're going to get us to the finish line in your time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.